0: I'd like us to begin this morning in Luke the 14th chapter. Uh, It's Luke the 14th chapter. And we're really going to build up this morning to examining a sequence of parables that Jesus detailed to those around him concerning the kingdom of God. One of the more fascinating aspects of all the Gospels is the fact that uh, those that compiled the Gospels and wrote them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit gave us brief snapshots into the life of Jesus. Now, as I trust we all do, we know that Scripture is the inspired Word of God. It was written quite literally under the direction of God. All that it's in is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction. And so as we're reading this account these accounts, we can realize that they're given to us for specific reasons. You know, Jesus had 33 years here on this earth, approximately 33 years from what we understand. There is a lot that could be included in any number of the Gospels that we read, of the four that we have, but rather we have these specific instances in the life of Jesus. And so in chapter 14, This chapter opens up into a new day in the life of Jesus. Often the accounts that we read span across multiple days or one day, but we're sort of opening up on a new scene in chapter 14. And Jesus is once again, as He often does, trying to teach and speak truth into the lives of the people who are currently following Him. We're told that it came to pass in verse 1, as He went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched Him. This was one of the Pharisees' favorite hobbies. They loved to watch Jesus because He created all kinds of turmoil. He undermined their position in a variety of ways that they didn't even fully understand. And eventually, even as they're watching Him, they're plotting to take His life. They're plotting to overthrow Him. As we're told, the gospel of Jesus Christ turned the world upside down. The known world of the Pharisees and the political rulers of this time was shaken. It was shaken by this man Jesus. They didn't even really know how to interpret who he was. And so they're watching him as he goes to eat bread on the Sabbath day. And behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. And Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? So there's this man afflicted with this. Terrible neurological disease. We're not even entirely sure what dropsy was. But regardless, this is a chronic illness that this man has probably had for years. And he comes in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus asks the Pharisees and Sadducees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Because I'll submit to you this morning, the primary purpose of Jesus in coming down to this earth was not necessarily to heal people. He came to save His people from their sins. That's why we're told that He came. But this man is before Him stricken with this disease. And Jesus looks on him, and as we're told many times throughout the Gospels, He is moved with compassion. No doubt He was in this case as well. And they held their peace, and He took Him and healed Him and let Him go. And it's in this circumstance as Jesus bestows His mercy and compassion upon this man by healing Him that Jesus begins to talk to the Pharisees and Sadducees and those with Him about the Kingdom of God. We're going to examine several attitudes in relation to the kingdom of God and several familiar parables. In chapter 15 and verse 8, I want to read the first. Just the parable of the lost coin. Jesus uses this parable to illustrate one primary thing. We have this woman that has a coin. Or she rather has ten coins. One piece of which she misplaces in her house. Now, it's difficult to think about this today because I think about having 10 quarters. And if I misplaced a quarter, I would not be that concerned. Because at this point, just due to inflation and everything like that, I, cannot, I can't even really buy a piece of gum with a quarter. You know, but this, this coin potentially could be the equivalent of, say, $1,000 in today's money. So this woman has $10,000, 1000 of which she misplaces somewhere in her house. Now I've never had $10,000 in cash in my hand, but if I lost a thousand of that, no doubt I would be very concerned. And so this woman does what we would expect any of us to do. She goes throughout her house with a candle, she sweeps out the entirety, she cleans out the garbage, she sweeps out the dust, she checks behind all of her furniture, and finally she finds that coin. And what does she do when she finds the coin? She celebrates. She celebrates with her friends and her neighbors and she calls them together and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Now Jesus uses this parable to illustrate the attitude of God towards His children. He says, The Lord rejoices more over that one recovered coin than the nine which the woman had never lost. He does this with the parable of the lost sheep as well. There is one sheep that is lost. There is 99 that are contained safe within the fold. The shepherd, the loyal shepherd, our loving shepherd, he will not lose one of his sheep. So he goes out among the brambles and the thickets and he finds that sheep and he takes it to his own. Now here's the catch and a little bit of a plot twist. Eternally, the Lord's never lost one of his sheep. He's always had them. He's always had the 100 sheep. But when one turns aside here in this life, when it becomes confused and it wanders off into the brambles and the thickets, the Lord shows mercy to those sheep as well. And He rejoices when they're recovered. He rejoices when that sheep is found. Just as the woman did, the woman lost her coin. And she goes throughout her house and she sweeps and she cleans. And she looks under her furniture and she checks those nooks and crannies that she hasn't looked in in years until finally she finds that coin. You know, sometimes we lose the precious object that is the kingdom of God. We lose that coin. We misplace it among all of the other junk that we have elsewhere. And we have to go out in our house and we have to take the trash that we have there. We have to clean the dust away. We have to move our furniture and we have to find that coin because the kingdom of God and the things of God are often lost in our dirty houses. I'll be moving here in a couple of weeks and I'm preparing for doing that by doing some long delayed spring cleaning. You know, I found some stuff buried within the deep recesses of the place that I lived for about a year and a half that I never even knew that I had. I lost them so long ago and so thoroughly and they went under the couch and they went somewhere way in the back of my closet that I didn't even know I have those things. We never want that to happen to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a precious thing. It is as the treasure within the field in Matthew 13 when a man was plowing and he found this treasure, this precious object buried in the field that wasn't his. And he sold all that he had and he bought that field so that he could have that treasure. See, that's the kingdom of God. That's the lost coin. We're going to lose and misplace The things of God at some point in our lives. It's inevitable because we are imperfect. It's going to slip under the couch, it's going to be thrown in the back of the closet, it's going to become buried in some dust. We'll have to clean it off, we'll have to blow it off, tarnish it to make it back into the precious object that it once was to us. But let us be the woman with the coin. If one day maybe we're sitting at the table with our family, we're sitting around with friends. We're interacting with children of God and we pull out our ten coins and we begin to look through them and we discover that horror of horrors, one has been lost. Let's go back to our houses. Let's take our brooms and search for the coin until it is once again found. The Lord rejoices in that. He rejoices when His children take their brooms And they take their spiritual weapons. And they take their spiritual cleaning supplies, if you will. And they go back to their dirty houses. And they clean aside the rubble. And they find that precious coin. And guess what? They gather all their friends together. They come into the house of God. And they say, I've been rejuvenated. I have found that which I lost. I've found that which I lost. I've found the lost coin. You know, in the next parable that we read take somewhat of a different approach to the kingdom of God. We're no doubt familiar with this parable. It's the parable of the prodigal son. We have two sons with their father. In verse 11, this certain man, he did have two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with righteous living. Now tradition tells us that the inheritance is not traditionally distributed as entirely goods. Not just cows or the, the heads of cattle or the other animals that this man would have had or land. It certainly wasn't land. Because how is this young man going to take the portion of land that's allotted to him and journey into a far country? No, this rich man, no doubt, liquidated almost all, like half of his assets. He took his assets, he took his land, and he sold it. And he gives the money to this confused son. So after the man sells all of his, all of this young man's goods and gives him the portion that he could carry with him at least, the young man goes and he wastes it. And we had spent all. There arose a mighty famine in that land. And he began to be in want. What happens when we take and discard our father's inheritance? Well, the Lord asks us to treat the gifts that we have been given upon this earth wisely. We read that every good gift and every perfect gift cometh from above and from the Father of lights. Do you have something that's good in your life? Do you have something that you see as good and valuable? If it's of spiritual worth, unequivocally, it comes from God. Do you see the spiritual goodness in your family or in a spouse? or in the physical blessings that you've been given upon this earth, do they bless your soul in some way? Those things are from God. What happens when we take the gifts that we've been given them and we waste them in riotous living? Whatever that may appear as. Well, the thing is that the riotous living will not satisfy the soul of the child of God. There's going to come a time after they've wasted their inheritance that their soul grows hungry once again. That is just an indisputable fact of spirituality here on this earth. The child of God. The soul of the child of God. That which the Lord has prepared for heaven in His grace and mercy in the new birth will not be satisfied with the things of this world. So very, very soon, this young man, he takes his inheritance, he takes his money, he takes that which the Lord has given him, and he goes and he spends it all. What happens? It just doesn't feed his soul his soul is not satisfied. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. How far has this young man fallen? Once a son once a son of his father, heir to all the riches of his father's estate, in fellowship with his father, on speaking terms with his father, And considering all that the father gave him, his son was probably a relatively respectable individual. He wasn't a wild man because the father had the option to refrain from giving this son his portion of the inheritance. But he gave it to the young man. And seemingly, this young man went money crazy. You know, as as we often see in the world, you know, there's... A state, specifically an individual, that just won some big bucks, it was uh, approximately two billion, and you know, one of our, one of our uh, nationwide jackpots. You know, often what happens to those people is they go from incredibly poor to incredibly rich as this young man did, and it's nearly impossible to handle it. And this young man has just won the lottery. he's won his inheritance, and he doesn't seem to know how to conduct himself. He goes from being a son to feeding the swine, and if any of you have ever fed swine, there's nothing quite as filthy or degrading, or as some of the things required to do that. You know, it's one of the things that I really enjoyed doing throughout high school. Was we had swine. They are very nasty, filthy animals. And this young man has fallen so low, and he's so hungry, and the famine is so great, we're told in verse 16 that he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave them to him. He goes in there to try to take the slop from the swine that he's feeding, and he can't even get any food. This young man has fallen a long way. He hasn't realized that he's lost his coin. He hasn't realized what he's lost. And when he came to himself in verse 17, that language is fantastic. And he came to himself. He woke up apparently or suddenly had this sudden realization, what am I doing? I've taken my father's inheritance. I've wasted it on these pointless, riotous aspects of my living. And now I'm trying to eat slop from the pigs that I have to feed. He said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough in despair, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants." And he arose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. This is the attitude of the father towards the lost coin. When the lost coin is once again found, the father rejoices in that. Once again in this parable, we see his son. He has lost his way. He is completely and utterly lost his way. He's fallen from being a father of the son to feeding the pigs. And suddenly he comes to himself and he realizes, maybe I can go crawling back to my father's house in my belly and ask him if I can be a hired servant. He's not interested in changing the position that he's been in. He just wants to be in his father's house. He wants to be a doorkeeper in his father's house. He wants to be a servant there. He wants to bring his father food. He wants to wash his feet. He wants to take off his father's sandals. It doesn't matter to him that he'll be a servant. He just wants to be back in his father's house. But when the son tells the father in verse 21, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. How many times do you think he rehearsed that on the way back to his father's house? I've sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. I've sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But yet when he comes before the Father, the Father sees in him that lost coin that's rolled under the furniture. That lost sheep that's wandered off in the brambles and thickets. And he says, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and it is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Here's the celebration for the lost coin. Call the friends and neighbors. Strike up the music. We must have a celebration. For the coin was lost and it has now been found. The son was lost and he has now been found. He once strayed from his father's house, but he is now returned. And the elder son was in the field and he came and drew nigh to his house. He heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he, the servant, said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. The noise of this rejoicing spreads all throughout the man's estate. The servants rejoice. The father rejoices, because the son he has repented and returns. Now these are two of the attitudes that we can have towards the kingdom of God. If, again, we're imperfect people. We lose our coins very easily. We wander from our father so quickly. What is there to be done? Well we can either sweep out our houses, we can find that coin once again rapidly and quickly, and we can show our joy in finding that peace which was lost by celebrating. Sometimes we find ourselves in the position of the prodigal son or in such a dazed stupor that we don't even realize that we're feeding swine. But the young man, I hope we all by the grace of God come to ourselves. Remember, the young man came to himself and he remembered his father's house. He remembered that it is better to be a servant in the house of my father than to be out wasting my inheritance on riotous living. He would rather work as a hired servant, a slave in the field, than be out enjoying the pleasures of the world. Yes, we see that attitude throughout Scripture because again, the creature within us, the soul within us, cries out against the things of this world. It's starved for the things of God. It's starved for the kingdom of God. In order to satisfy that, we often have to go find that coin. We often have to come stumbling back to our father's house and say, we're no more worthy to be called your children. Let us be a servant in your house. Let us serve you and wash your feet and tie your sandals and serve you food. You know, and then we have this third parable. And Luke the 16th chapter. Which is another attitude of nearly undisputably some children of God towards the kingdom. It's just a little bit darker. It's a little bit more somber. And Jesus tells another parable in chapter 16, verse 1. There was a certain rich man which had a steward And the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig to beg. I am ashamed. This rich man, he has a steward. He has one that's been appointed to manage his estate. Essentially, this man represented the interests of the master. He goes about the master's estate, he buys and he sells and he purchases, purchases in his Lord's name. He no doubt, in today's legal terms, he can sign his name on all of the legal documents, all of the documents that he would be forced to sign in these transactions, but he has decided to cheat his Lord. He has decided to become a dishonest our Scripture entitles him an unrighteous steward. And rightly so, he asks the question, well, what shall I do now that I'm to be dismissed from my position as steward? He says, I cannot dig to beg, I am ashamed. In other words, I can't do manual labor. I can't take a shovel and go out and dig ditches for my living. I can't sit on the side of the road and beg money from pastors by I'm ashamed to do any of those things. What shall I do? He says in verse 4 I am resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him, and said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, An hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then said he to another, And how much owest thou? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and write fourscore. And the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Now it seems as if the Lord could draw some important lessons from this. He could conclude some basic things about honesty. He'd say, well, the unjust steward was deprived of his position because he cheated the Lord out of this money and this grain. But instead, he teaches somewhat of a controversial lesson. He says the children of light in this generation are less wise than the unjust steward. Because again, we have a parable which is illustrating to us the attitude that a certain group of people often have towards the kingdom of God. Specifically in this parable, he's teaching the Pharisees and Sadducees. You see the unjust steward. You see his unjust conduct. He sits his Lord's debtors down and he says, how much do you owe? They're told, well, I owe a hundred measures of wheat. He says, well, take your bill and write that you only owe 80. Or in the prior case, he says, take your bill and write that you only owe half of that which you thought you did. And this man, rightly so, for his devious actions, however intelligent he was, he's dismissed from his position. He's an unrighteous steward. The Lord's given him the interests of his estate, the interests of of all that he owns. And instead, the steward goes before his debtors and he cheats his lord out of significant amounts of money. Why does he do this? Because he wants his lord's debtors to receive him into their houses when he is dismissed from his position. Perhaps this man was old. Perhaps he was concerned about his welfare after he had been dismissed. And so his simple scheme is, I will lessen the debts of my lord's debtors so that they will think favorably of me when I am fired. What a horrible thing to do. He would no doubt be fired and he would probably be prosecuted by today's standards for fraud and all manner of other legal charges. But instead, the Lord looks at him and he says, this unjust steward is certainly unjust. But the children of light... And the generation to which Jesus was speaking, have treated the kingdom of God worse than the unjust steward did. The children of light are less wise than the children of this world. Is He teaching us to go about in the world cheating those of money? Whoever we can cheat, we must cheat them you know, in order to get ahead, in order to take advantage of our competitors. No, He's not teaching that in the least. But He's illustrating to the Pharisees this unjust steward was horrible. He cheated the master of his interests. He robbed him of his money. And further, yet, after he had been dismissed, he continued to cheat his Lord out of the money which the Lord debtors owes him. And he says, This generation, the generation of those to whom he was speaking, you've been worse than the unjust steward. You've looked at the interests of your master, you've looked at the things that he has entrusted to you, and you have cheated the Lord of the things which He has laid to your responsibility. And He says in verse 9, Make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Saying, Pharisees and Sadducees, when you fail, I hope the children of mammon will be able to receive you into something as everlasting as that which I have given you. And the disturbing message behind these verses, these statements that Jesus told to these Pharisees, is there are no everlasting habitations offered by the world. There are none. We can cheat as the unjust steward did. We can go out and we can waste our inheritance on riotous living. We can refuse to look for our lost coin because it becomes difficult and because our houses are tangled messes. But the world doesn't offer the everlasting habitations of God. The world doesn't offer things that span into eternity. The world doesn't offer the blessings of the church. The world doesn't offer the peace that calms the troubled soul of the child of God. Those everlasting habitations aren't there. It says, so take into account the shrewdness of the unjust steward, because even he was better than you, you Pharisees and you Sadducees. So what do we have? We have this woman that's you know sought out the coin diligently. She's lost it and she's found it. We have the lost son who's come back to his father's house. And then at the far end of this spectrum we have uh, these men who treated the kingdom of God so casually. And the Lord says in verse 10, He is faithful, and that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches?" and ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's. Who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. And the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things and they derided Him. It says if you wish, to be faithful in that which is much, be faithful in that which is little. If you wish to possess great spiritual riches, begin by treating the God, to the kingdom of God, better than the unjust steward. You know, for no servant can serve two masters. Is Jesus' can, conclusion? He'll love the one and he'll hate the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. In verse 16, we read, before Jesus moves to an entirely different subject, His conclusion is, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. The law and the prophets were until the time of John. John the Baptist, he came preaching The coming of Christ. The coming of the kingdom of God. A different type of responsibility. A different type of rule. Every man, meaning every child of God, is to press into that kingdom. And how is that to be done? Well, the answers have just been laid out before us. The kingdom of God is a precious thing It is indisputably and indescribably precious. It's something that we can't even truly wrap our minds around the worth of. It's to be treated as such. If it's lost in the rubble, if we wander away and we come to ourselves and realize that we're feeding swine, we go to search for our coin, we stumble back to our Father's house as a servant. We must conduct ourselves more wisely than the unjust steward. Right. And Jesus, He continues on to detail really principles of the Kingdom of God past these parables. You'll read about divorce and forgiveness. And He tells us later on in chapter 17 in verse 20 that the Kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo, here." Or lo, there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Probably one of the most important descriptions of the kingdom of God that we have throughout the Gospels, for me at least, because I often wonder what the kingdom of God is. What is this coin that we're trying to find? What is this coin that we're supposed to rejoice over? What is this treasure that we're digging up and we're selling all that we have to obtain? What is this house and the relationship with the father that the son is stumbling back to? Well, the kingdom of God, we're just told by Jesus, it's not over here. It's not over there. It's not necessarily a physical locality. It's not one of the kingdoms of this earth. We can't look to the east or to the west or the north or the south and look for the kingdom of this world and say, oh, that is the kingdom of God. That is where the Lord manifests Himself as the ruler of the world. No, the kingdom of God is within us here today. It's a miraculous truth because as we interact with children of God, we see within them glimpses of the kingdom of God. It hasn't come to fruition yet. We haven't seen it in its perfection. We haven't been delivered to the fullest expression of the kingdom of God where all is perfect and sin is no more and there is no more sorrow and there is no more pain. But yes, we go about catching glimpses of it here on this earth. We may have a coin We may have the servant. We may be a servant in our Father's house. We may be entrusted with the riches of this kingdom as a steward. We may go about this earth as ambassadors of Christ. But the kingdom of God is within you. He was speaking to every born-again child of God at that moment. The kingdom of God is within you. Why didn't he say the kingdom of God is with you all? Or it's, it's amongst those to whom I'm speaking. He says the kingdom of God is within you. And within that word you, he was speaking to all those that he loved and bled and died for. It's there. The coins often swept under the furniture and we can't seem to find it. But it is indeed there. It's within You. You know, and interestingly enough, Jesus goes on to detail his coming. He goes on to detail the circumstances surrounding his death. And then we'll see him, both here and elsewhere in the Gospels, ascend back up to heaven. And, but the message here is the kingdom of God is here upon this earth. The law and the prophets may have been until John, the temple may have been until John. The priest may have gone behind the thickly veiled holiest of holies and sprinkled blood upon the mercy seat, but now what is revealed to us is the kingdom of God. The days of Christ. Let's sweep out our houses. Let's find our coins. Let's often stumble back to our Father's house and the prostrate attitude of a servant. Let's treat the affairs of our Father more richly and carefully than the unjust steward. You know, we're told in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are to be ambassadors of Christ, which is something that has been brought back to my mind again and again and again over these past several months. Because I've always found the, the role of an ambassador to be fascinating. At one very strange point, um, when I was a lot younger, I wanted to be both an ambassador and an astronaut. Those, those thoughts were in my mind at the same time because I thought the position of ambassador was fascinating. They go around the world, they travel the globe, and they represent the interests of their country. They go about handling the political affairs of the country to which they are bound. We've had some very controversial political eruptions occur as a result of the mistreatment of United States ambassadors. Because they go about representing the interests of the United States. They're under the United States protection. They go into conferences and they represent the, the interests of our nation. And what does an ambassador do? when they encounter a difficult situation in which they are required to sacrifice the interests of their country, they say, well, we'll surrender our nation's income. We'll surrender our our political interests, our political authority to this country that's threatening us. No, they represent the interests of their country firmly. They stand upon the grounds of whom they represent. And similarly, as we go about realizing that the kingdom of God is within God's children, It's in the church. It's in many of those that we interact with. We're ambassadors. We don't sacrifice the interests of our home country because our circumstances become difficult. We don't go into a conference where we are pressured by another country to sacrifice our interests and buckle and yield. We don't surrender our coins or our situation as a son in our father's house in the name of the world. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5 and 20, now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. Paul says, I go about as an ambassador for Christ. It's as if Christ came and beseeched you. It's as if Christ Himself has sent us and He beseeches you by us. Be reconciled to God. saying, find your coin. Be reconciled to the Father. Come back on your knees as a servant and realize that you can be reinstated to your position as an ambassador. The Lord rejoices in those returning unto Him. There is no telling how the young man that returned to his father had been marred by his time in the world. There's a distinct chance that he was irreparably marred in ways that we cannot even truly imagine. But he returned to his father's house and was reinstated as not only just a servant, but also his son. You know, when we're challenged to sacrifice the interests of the kingdom to the forces of the world, Ephesians 6 becomes particularly relevant. Because Paul is telling our, and describing our spiritual attitude toward the assaults of the world. Because in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, he's once again drawing a conclusion, much like Jesus did when He said the law and the prophets were until John. Paul's finishing his letter to the Ephesian church. And he says, finally... In high places. As an ambassador of Christ, there is absolutely no question that we wrestle against the forces of our enemies. They don't always manifest themselves as the enemies of this world. It's not always a physical army, a physical persecution, but rather it is the principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness of this world against spiritual wickedness in very high places. There could be nothing more dire. Physical enemies may appear more threatening to us often, but the subtle, the subtle spiritual tactics of the devil and of those ensnared by him are much more subtle and are much more deceptive. And he says, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. There's no more important principle of spirituality than the principle that's expressed to us here in this verse. It's it's one of the most important, for me at least, is that there comes a time when the tide is often too strong to fight against. And the most basic thing that we are required to do is just continue to stand. Also, one of the more important principles of biblical masculinity is that same thing. Stand. Stand. When the tide becomes too strong and the water and current becomes too fast, the darts become too thick and the wiles of Satan become too devious, you may not be able to press forward, but we are able to stand. And that's why Paul says when you have done all, When your strength fails, when there is nothing further left to do, just stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. We've read a lot this morning. Those passages are flowing. They're rich. They're deep. They contain much spiritual wisdom. But the cohesive principle is the same. The kingdom of God has been revealed. The kingdom, the time of the kingdom of God is now. Which attitude will we have towards the kingdom of God? Which attitude will we have towards the precious thing that we have been gifted? Will we sell all that we have? We take our house and clean it and sell it so that we can recover the precious metals that are the kingdom of God. We take all that we once knew and leave it behind and journey out into a far country in search of the things that the Lord has promised us as Abraham did. We begin to construct our ark as Noah did in the face of all opposition only knowing that the Lord had promised destruction upon the earth all laughed at Him and all derided Him. There was only a very small, select group of people that believed Him, but He continued to build hour after hour, day after day, year after year, in the face of all opposition. He did so in faith. Why is it that we're told above all to take the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked? Because we notice how all the saints perform these great and incredible acts in faith. Faith is really the thing that we have that spans beyond what we can understand here in this time. It spans beyond that which we see. It spans beyond rational understanding. We're told that hope, which comes from faith, is an anchor of the soul which spans beyond the veil. I'm paraphrasing. The veil that is this temporal experience that we have now that keeps us from visualizing the kingdom of God in all perfection when we're joined with Christ for all eternity. Faith spans beyond that. It allows us to see that. So in those moments when Noah didn't really understand what he was being told, when he didn't understand what was going to happen, when he didn't understand this flood that the Lord was speaking of or why it would occur, When Abel didn't even really fully understand why he would have been struck dead by the hand of his brother Cain for the sacrifice that he offered, faith spanned beyond the veil. Faith spanned beyond that which which they understood. And let's use faith to recover that which we have lost. Uh, We sing that incredible song that is echoed throughout churches for hundreds of years. Amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Part of the reason that hymn has been so prevalent throughout churches for hundreds of years is the fact that it's drawn directly from Scripture. The Lord in His grace rejoices when the coin is found. He rejoices when the sun returns. And yes, I believe He even rejoices when an unjust steward experiences a change of heart. He rejoices when His children take upon the shield of faith that quench the fiery darts of the wicked. They may not fully understand what's going on. They may not fully understand what they have been called upon to do. But they are resolved to build their ark to offer their sacrifices in the face of opposition, to travel into a far country, to be slain in the name of the Lord, to lose their very lives in the name of the precious gems that we've been gifted with.